When the sailors that are going through the Navy SEAL team start the Navy SEAL team, that's a quite a long course and there's three parts to it. But early on, in the third week, all the guys go through what's called Hell Week. Because they make life as miserable as they can on all of these men to see if they can get them to drop out. Now I understand that what they go through doesn't compare with the hell what we read about in the Bible. And I don't mean to make light of that, but that's what they call it. They call it Hell Week. And for five and a half days, these guys get by in only about four hours of sleep. And they do physical activity for 20 hours a day. During this five days, they will run 200 miles. You may have seen pictures of them where they, uh, they're all out in the, in the surf and the sand is getting in their clothes and this ice cold water is washing up on them and they got their hands locked together or arms and they're trying to encourage each other and stick together as a team and not quit. And the whole time they've got these instructors you've seen on TV, you know, drill sergeants that yell at the, at the soldiers and cuss at them and insult them and call them names and insult their mother. They've got these instructors that are yelling at them and adding to their misery and rather than encouraging, say, calling them babies and calling them sissies and say, you can quit, you can go home to your mom, there's a bell up here on the beach, you come read this, ring this bell and it'll be all over. And rather than encouraging these guys like a coach might encourage a basketball team, he's trying to get them to quit. And why is he trying to get them to quit? Because they want only the best to stick to it. Because when, when it comes down to war and it's us against them, we want only the best men that are going to be out there and not someone that's going to give up. And we as Christians are going through our own version of Hell Week. And it's not nearly as bad. Well, I shouldn't say that. Usually it's not as bad as what I just described. But we're going through our own Hell Week and it's called life. All through the Bible we're taught To do right regardless of what happens to us. Just like those uh, Navy SEALs are trying to be taught to, to be tough and to stick it out and to do what they're supposed to regardless of the circumstances, we as Christians are taught to do right regardless of what other people do. I want to talk about three things and the first one I want to talk about is doing what's right regardless of others. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus warned us to not be like the tax collectors. The tax collectors back in the Roman Empire were often uh, uh, dishonest and they would take from you more than what you owed in taxes and they would pocket themselves. And the people resented the tax collectors. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now why did that ever have to be written? Isn't that what you naturally do? No one had ever had to tell me to hate my enemies. That just came natural. But Jesus says, You have heard that it was written, You shall love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I say to you, Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. He says in verse 45, verse 46, If you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even tax collectors do the same? Have you ever been around someone? I was around someone recently, and I met him and, and shook hands, and he should have been wanting to meet me, 
and he just kind of shook hands and and then turned away and didn't have anything else to say with me. I thought, wow, that was kind of a cold reception. Have you ever been around people like that? Maybe remember back in school where all the popular people hung out together, but you popular ones, so they didn't hang out with you, and they just pretty much ignored you? And Jesus asked the question, if you, as a Christian, treat other people that way, then you're no better than the non-Christians. Jesus says, I want you to do better than that. Everybody can hate their enemies, but I want you to love your enemies. I want you to do the right thing, regardless of how people treat you. Let's go on and... uh, Or let's reread part of that. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Oh, well, I love everybody. That's easy to do. Bless those that curse you. How hard is it when someone literally cusses at you or insults you to smile and look at them and say thank you? What's our natural reaction? We want to bow up and and argue with them and say, "What what do you mean? You can't be talking to me like that. We want to defend ourselves. Jesus says, bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, it's easy in church when we're all sitting here and we're around fellow Christians to say, yeah, I believe all that. But I've learned that when you've got someone that's stabbing you in the back, when someone is lying to the boss about you, when someone is trying to frame you and make you look bad, when a fellow Christian is going to church and lying about you, he's lying to you, and he's doing everything in his power to make your life miserable and to make other people hate you, and he's a fellow Christian. Sometimes they're not, or usually they're not, but occasionally it's a fellow Christian. It is hard when you pray to think good things about this person. As miserable as he has made your life, it is hard to ask God to forgive him or to, or whatever. It's easy to pray for our family and people we love. It is really tough when someone hates you and is doing everything they can to make your life miserable to do good to them and think good. Now, Jesus says here, He says to do all these things in verse 45, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. And then Jesus explains what He's talking about. He says that God makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good. When the sun comes up in the morning, it shines on everyone. When it rains, it rains on everyone's yard, whether they deserve it or not, no matter how badly they've treated you. And then, of course, he asked the question, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? He said, therefore, you should be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Does that mean that we can be perfect people? No, that's not what it means. An artist is, is painting a picture, and he gets almost finished, and he says, something is missing. And someone walks in and says, why don't you put this right here? And so the artist he goes, perfect. There's a perfect painting and there's not a better painting in the world. No, it means it's finished now. He's got everything there that he wants. It's complete. And God wants our love, Jesus wants our love to be complete. He doesn't want us to just love the people that love us. God or Jesus wants us to love everyone that we may be the sons of our Father in heaven. How do you know that someone is the son of someone else or daughter of someone else? 
I remember when the first, well, not the first time I'd been to Ardmore, but the first time I'd been to Ardmore in years and years and years. And I didn't know who went there, really. And I walked in, and I said, that is Carrie McCorkle's sister. <laughs> she looked exactly like Carrie McCorkle. And sure enough, it was her sister. Her sister and dad go there. I, uh, I remember when our girls started uh, getting to be teenagers, and I'd call home from the fire station expecting Angie to answer the phone. And somebody would answer, I'd go, who is this? Because <laughs> they all started sounding alike. And we see that all the time. A son looks just as like, exactly like his father or walks just like his dad or a daughter sounds just like their mother or the hair's the same. Funny thing is our daughter Elizabeth that's adopted, she's been told a lot of times, she looked exactly like your mother when <laughs> she was adopted. But that's how we tell when some, or one way we can tell when someone's related because they're the same. And Jesus says, love our enemies that you may be the sons of your Father. We should look just like Christ. We're supposed to glorify our Father who is in heaven by our actions. So in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 18, Peter gives us an application of this. Doing the right thing in, in spite of uh, bad circumstances. First Peter 2 and 18, Peter says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Have you ever had a bad boss? How do you tell the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Well, the non-Christian goes around grumbling and said, Well, if they'd pay me more, I would do more. And then when the boss isn't around, they, they get on their phone or they sit down or they go smoke a cigarette. Anything to get out of work. What does a Christian do? Well, Peter says here that a Christian should be... Or, and of course, he was talking about masters and servants, but the same principle applies to bosses and employees and so on. The Christian's supposed to do the right thing, even if he's got a bad boss. And I can look back and think of a lot of bad bosses I've had. And it's hard to have a good attitude when you've got a bad boss that's not treating you right. But Jesus says, I want you to rise above your feelings and be the son of your father and do the right thing no matter how you feel about it, no matter how people treat you. In First uh, Peter chapter 3, Peter gives us another application. He says, Likewise, you wives, being submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. So here... Peter says that wives are supposed to be in submission to their husbands, even if their husband is not the best man in the world. An example he uses here, even if they're not a Christian. Why does he say that? He says, when they observe the way you conduct yourself, you will glorify God and they will be impressed. And possibly, by your good conduct, they will be converted to Christ. Now, what if you're a bitter wife? It's always nagging and griping at your husband and doing everything you can to make his life miserable. Is he going to get a good impression of Christianity? Of course not. You complain about your husband. He doesn't treat me right and he's never kind to me and he's always out fishing with the guys and he, he never brings me flowers. Well, are you the kind of person that he wants to be around? Peter says here, you need to be the kind of person that your husband wants to be around, that your children want to be around. They need to be impressed with your good conduct. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes that husbands, love your wives. 
Now, if you listen to country music or pop music, you think that love is a feeling. There's songs that say, talk about falling in of love and falling out of love. Love is not a feeling. Love is something that you do. And now, you, you're going to get good feelings when you do good things. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says that love suffers long or is patient. He says that love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. Do you behave rudely to your wife? If you behave rudely to your wife, you are not loving her. Now, you may have some good feelings to her, towards her, but if you're behaving rudely, you're not treating her with love. Love does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not think evil. Do you think evil of your wife? Are you always suspicious of her? Wondering what, where she's been or who she's talked to on the phone? Are you always suspicious? That's not love. Love does not rejoice in equity. <laughs> she had that coming. That's not loving. That's hateful. And Jesus wants us to rise above our feelings and treat other people good, no matter how they treat us, even when our wife is bad. First John chapter 4 and verse 19, I believe it is, says, We love Him, we love God, because He first loved us. Paul writes, while we were still sinners, while we were yet sinners... So if God can love us when we're sinful, when we've not been saved, when we're condemned, can we not love our wives and our husbands when they're not perfect? That we may be the children of our Father? In Matthew chapter seven twelve is what's called the golden rule. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, however you want other people to treat you, that's how you need to treat them. When Laura was about six or seven years old, she was being mean to Danielle, and we got onto her, and Laura spat off. She says, well, the Bible says treat other people the way you want to be treated, and that's the way Danielle treated me, so that must be how she wants to be treated. <laughs> she would have made a good lawyer. <laughs> so, that's not what God's talking about. You know what He's talking about. How do you want people to treat you when you've been up studying just almost all night for final exams, hadn't got much sleep, and you're stressed out about this test that may make or break your college you know, career. And you don't feel too good. And you snap at your mother. How do you want her to talk to you? Do you want her to get mad and yell? No, you want her to be patient with you. You don't feel good. You shouldn't have said it. But you still want her to be nice to you. When you come home from a long day of work and the boss, you're afraid of losing your job, the boss hates you. And you're just a nervous wreck and you snap at your wife. How do you want her to talk to you? That's the way you need to talk to her when she's had a bad day. We need to treat other people the way we want them to treat us. It doesn't matter if we're tired or grumpy or mad or sick or whatever. We want people to be nice to us. So we need to be nice to other people no matter if they're grumpy or sick or mad or hateful or whatever. We need to treat other people the way we want to be treated. We need to rise above the actions of other people. You know, darkness cannot drive out darkness. The only thing that can drive out darkness is light. When someone's hateful to us and we get that attitude, I'll show them, I'll get revenge, that's not going to make things better. I think I've talked about some times where someone mistreats me and I think, well, I'll show them. And so I do something mean back to them. I say something or talk behind their back or whatever. And then they do something worse. And that makes me matter. 
I said, I'll show them. And I'll do something to get back at them. And then they do something and I do something. And it's a downward spiral. And all of a sudden you wake up and you are so embarrassed that as a Christian, I did these things. I am so embarrassed. And I didn't win. They won. The only thing that will drive out darkness is light. The only thing that will drive out hatred is love. You can't beat hatred with more hatred. Some people feed on it. The more, the more the argue, I mean, the argument intensifies and heats up and the matter you get, the more they like it. They just feed on it. Like the, these monsters in, you know, science fiction. They just suck in this energy of hatred that you're giving out. But when you respond with love, then you quit feeding the situation and it quits being a downward spiral. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that a Christian tries to do right no matter how other people are acting. Zig Ziglar talks about responding versus reacting. You go to the doctor, you go to a hospital, they give you some medicine, and you ha- the doctor says, oh, you had a reaction to the medicine. That's bad, isn't it? It can kill you if you have a bad enough reaction. Or you go in for treatment and the doctor says you're responding well to the treatment. Responding is good. Reacting is bad. We need to respond to other people with love rather than reacting with anger or, or hatred. Christian needs to do right no matter the difficulties they face. Remember in the book of Job, Job was a very rich man. If you read there in the first chapter where it talks about how many cattle and camels and sheep and everything he had, I don't know how much all those animals are worth now or how much they were worth back then. But if you just assign, I've done this, I've just to say that each animal he had was worth $100, which I know a lot of them are worth a lot more than that. He had hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the Bible says he had, I think, seven daughters and three sons. He had ten kids. And everything was perfect for Job. He was living a fairy tale life. And then in one day, bad things started happening here and there and here and there. He lost all his children and he lost all his flocks. And they came and told him the bad news. And then Satan was behind all this. And then the Bible says that Satan came before God and God asked Satan, said, have you seen my servant Job? That he's still keeping his integrity in spite of what you have done for him? And Satan said, let me get at him again. And so then Satan took away his health. The Bible says he had boils from the top of his head to his feet. If there was ever a man that had a reason to be mit, uh, bitter and mad at God, it was uh, Job. But we read that Job says in Job 27, beginning in verse 2, As God lives who has taken away my justice, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me, And the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. Far be it from me that I should say you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity. What is integrity? Integrity is sticking to a moral code that you believe in. Integrity is doing what you say you believe. Integrity... It's doing what's right, or integrity is not doing what's wrong, even 
if nobody would know and you can get by with it. Integrity is doing the right thing all the time. Job says, till I die, I will not put away my integrity. And at this time, Job was one miserable human being. And so we as Christians are supposed to do the right thing no matter what happens to us. Why do bad things happen to good people? In Ecclesiastes chapter 9, in verse 12, I know a lot of times we say, well, they must have, that's what Job's friends were saying. They say, you must have done some evil to happen to you. And sometimes somebody we know, they lose a child to cancer or a wife in a car wreck or their house burns down or whatever. And we say, say why did this happen? He's such a good man. And it puzzles us. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 10, uh, 12, it says, For man also does not know his time. Like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. Sometimes things just happen through no fault of our own. I read recently about a, an 18-wheeler that ran off the road and through a fence and, and ran into an apartment and killed a guy. He was just in his apartment minding his own business. And now he's dead. They're in Van Alstine. I was going to do one of my pulls on Friday. And I went out. There's a road out in the country just off 75 that separates uh, Howe and Van Alstine. And I got up there. And as I was getting close, I saw a Sherman fire engine and an ambulance leave. And I saw a CareFlight helicopter take off. I thought, what's going on? And I got up there where I could see closer. There had been a bad accident. There was a, I think it was a family. I think they were on their way to Tulsa for some reason. And I suppose it was a husband that was driving. Pulled out in front of a, a Colin Grayson electric co-op truck. And it hit their minivan. And they care flew two kids to the hospital. And it killed his wife there in the front seat with him. Sometimes bad things happen to people. And, of course, that was, I suppose, his fault. I mean, for pulling out. I don't know. Maybe the sun was in his eye. I don't know what the deal was. But sometimes things just happen. The wife didn't do anything wrong. And we can look back on our lives, things that happen, and we say, why me? Now, sometimes things happen. You know, people say, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, sometimes the reason is because you're dumb and you do stupid things. You know, we can, that's when I want to kick myself the hardest. It's when it's my fault that something bad happened to me. It's one thing if Dusty out of the blue does something. Ah, it makes me mad when I do it to myself. Moses was a person like that. He's about 40 years old, and he thought he understood how all the Jewish slaves would understand that God was going to use him to deliver them. And he went out, and he was there was a Hebrew guy, I mean, uh, an Egyptian, beating a Hebrew. And so Moses kills the Hebrew, in, or the Egyptian, the bad guy, and buries him in the sand. They found out about it, and Moses had to leave. Sometimes we do dumb things, and we have to suffer from our what we've done. You know, financial decisions, a marriage decision, a, a business decision, whatever. And so what are we going to do? What do a lot of people do? Well, a lot of people run off. Some people commit suicide. They just want to end all their suffering. And they never stop to think there might be an afterlife. And there might be somebody or something else they've got to face. What does a Christian do? Job says, till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. 
A Christian always does the right thing, no matter the difficulties he faces. And so we have illness in our life. You know, we're always praying for people with cancer, you know, back surgeries, um, you know, divorces, our kids making making dumb decisions and making our lives miserable and their lives miserable and other people's lives miserable. Marriage problems. You know, like like it said in Ecclesiastes, just like the fish is just swimming along, minding his own business, and all of a sudden he's caught in a in a net. Problems are just a part of life. And I heard it said recently, the problem is not the problem. The problem is your attitude about the problem. You know, things are going along smoothly for a long time, and all of a sudden, a disaster hits us. And we think, this is a disaster. I don't know what to do. This is, this is horrible. It's not horrible. It's a disaster. But it's part of life. It's happened to everybody else in here. It's happened to your parents and your grandparents and your great, 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 ever so great grandparents. It's going to happen to your kids. And now it's happened to you. So what are you going to do? You're going to face it and solve it. And you're going to get over it. This too shall pass. You can get help from people. Uh, You can sell your house. You can do lots of things to get out of this problem. But you look back. And you can, if you're very old, you can remember lots of times you thought it was the end of the world. And it wasn't. You're still here. Up until this point, I have dealt with all the problems that have ever faced me because I'm still here. And you're still here. The problem is not the problem. The problem is our attitude about the problem. But one thing to remember is sin is never an alternative. I lost my job. Looks like we're about to lose our house. We're going into debt. Oh, the RS, what can I do? I can sell the house. I can ask people for money to help me out. I can get a second job. I can rob a bank. No. I can't rob a bank. That would be stupid. Sin is never an alternative. Oh, my marriage is so miserable. I never, ever thought it would come to this. What can I do? We can get some help from someone in the church. We can uh, get marriage counseling. We can just stick it out and see if things get better. We can get a divorce. I can kill my wife. No, you can't kill your wife. You can't get a divorce. Get marriage counseling. Talk to somebody and get help. Pray about it. Wait it out. Do what you can. Sin is never an alternative. That's when we start getting ourselves in trouble, it's when we start making the wrong decisions when we're under pressure. What do we spend our whole life raising our children to be? We train them to not get mad and fall off the handle and hit their friend. You can't take their toy from them just because you want it. We're trying to get our children to say, 
Just because you feel like doing something, don't do it. Here's the right thing to do. God is trying to get you and me to say, just because you're frustrated, just because you're at the end of your rope, just because you don't know what to do, don't do something stupid. Don't follow your feelings. Do the right thing, no matter what the difficulties are. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that a Christian always tries to do the right thing. So we've talked about uh, difficulties in life. We've talked about the way other people treat us. And the third thing I want to talk about is feelings. Of course, I just talked about how we spend 18 years trying to teach our children to not give in to their feelings. You know, some of us adults, either we were never taught that or we refused to learn it. And so we spend a lifetime, some of us spend a lifetime giving in to our feelings, just whatever... We feel like, you know, remember back in the 70s, there was a slogan, if it feels good, do it. A lot of people bought into that. And you give in to your feelings long enough, and eventually, it's going to be habit. Habit. The Bible talks about people having their senses exercised to discern good and evil. Well, that's a good kind of exercise, but we can have a negative exercise where we continually give in to our feelings, and then we think we can't control ourselves because it's habit. And that's, that's when we have problems. There's one man that always tried to teach his children that feelings are dangerous and can lead you astray and create chaos in your life. Because feelings change. God's Word doesn't. Jesus said, Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them will be like a man that built his house on the rock and the storms came and the winds blew and his house didn't fall because it's built on his rock. But whoever hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, but instead relies on his feelings to get through life, is like the man that built, and I kind of added that part, is like the man who built his house on the sands. And the storms came, and the floods came, and the wind, and his house fell. You know what that means? If we don't build our life on Jesus' principles, our life is going to be a mess. And we look around us and we see... All sorts of people whose lives are in messes because they did dumb things. They went by feelings or by advice from their friends, but they didn't build their life on the principles of God. I want to mention several things about feelings. Feelings are very unreliable. I heard about a couple where I guess a policeman knocked on their door, said their daughter, teenage daughter or whatever, had been involved in a car wreck and had been killed. And, of course, you can imagine they were just horrified. They were distraught. And so they went down to the morgue to make a uh, to identify the body. And it wasn't their daughter. Their feelings are unreliable. And your feelings are unreliable. And my feelings are unreliable. There's six things about feelings. Number one, feelings are not directly controllable. Angie said recently, she said, There is nothing that makes me matter than somebody that says to calm down. She says, I have never seen anybody calm down when they were told to calm down. You just can't change your feelings. There's times where I wake up in the middle of the night, not often, but occasionally I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't go back to sleep and I just start thinking. And I cannot think of one happy thought. Everything I think is just horrible. You know, we don't have enough money. Uh, you know, we're behind on the bill or something. And it never occurs to me, I just got five new customers. You know, I'm going to have more money coming in. 
And everything is just horrible. And I wake up the next morning, I get back to sleep. Maybe it's a Friday night and it's Saturday and I get to sleep late and I get a good night's sleep. And the next morning all my problems are gone. Well, not all of them, but I can face them now. Feelings are direct, are not directly controllable. Feelings must be identified and accepted the way they are. Well, I just don't feel like doing it. Okay. That's how you feel, but you've got to do it. Like the, like the woman that said, John, get out of bed. You're going to be late for school. And John says, I don't want to go to school. All the teachers hate me. The students laugh at me and call me names. She said, that may be true, but you're the principal. You've got to get up and go to bed. Uh, go to school. <laughs> it doesn't matter how you feel. You've got to get up and go to work. You've got to pay the electric bill. You won't have any electricity. You've got to get the cancer treatment or you'll die. I don't care how you feel. <clears throat> you, it's just a feeling. Every feeling can be useful. Every feeling. In Ephesians, Paul wrote, Be angry and do not sin. So we're not supposed to get angry. No, that's not what he says. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Um, I can remember when our kids were at home and they were little and they would do something to get on yours and say, Quit that. If you don't quit that, I'm going to whip you. Quit that. You better stop that. Do you want to stand in the court? And finally, I'd just get mad and I'd whip them. And I thought, <laughs> if I'd whipped them to begin with, it would have avoided a lot of problems. Sometimes being angry makes you do what you need to do. Feelings can be useful. You say, you go to <clears throat> the park with you know your kids on uh, uh, Cub Scout Day or Girl Scout Day or whatever, and they have activities and the parents are all involved and and you're out of breath and you're fat and you say, I'm just a fat, lazy slob. I can't do what these other parents are doing. Well, you know, you can use that feeling to motivate you to start eating better and to start exercising. Feelings can be good things if we do the right thing because of the feelings. Another thing that's important is that feelings go away with time unless you feed them. Now that... It's a bad thing, like when you get married and you have good thoughts towards your husband or wife and then you, you don't do anything to have a happy marriage and those feelings starts going away. But it's also a good thing, like when I wake up in the middle of the night and my whole life is miserable, that if I don't keep just sitting there thinking about it and thinking and thinking and wake up the next day and think and think and all day and think and think, those feelings will go away unless I feed them. Feelings go away unless you feed them. Feelings can indirectly be influenced through behavior. Man, I'm just a fat, lazy slob, and I've just let myself go. I'm going to exercise. So I do 10 sit-ups, that's all I can do, 5 push-ups, and I go walk for 2 miles. And I come back and I feel better. Am I any, any less fat? I mean, eat less of a slob? No, but I did something, and I feel better now. Why not feel better? Did I change my feelings? No, I changed my actions. Feelings can be indirectly uh, changed by our actions. And that's what God says. It didn't matter how Job felt. Job still had to do the right thing. And when all was said and done, Job had no regrets. He hadn't done anything stupid. He hadn't said anything stupid. He came out of it with a clear conscience. He remained faithful to God. 
So feelings can indirectly be influenced through behavior or through actions. And then the main point I've been getting to is we are responsible for our behavior independently of how we feel. John still has to go to school because he's the principal. You know, there's a lot of times, I'm not a morning person. And there's a lot of times, especially when you hadn't got much sleep and maybe overworked and, I don't know, getting a cold, that if I didn't work for myself, I'd call in sick. I just feel so, so bad. I'm not sick, but I feel as bad as if I was sick. But I've got to go to work. If I don't go to work on Monday, then I'm going to be behind the rest of the week. And I'm already working Saturdays because I'm so busy. And so I get up and I go to work. Maybe take some aspirin. And I, I do swimming pools and I go to my first pool and I do it. And I go sit in my pickup and say, I feel so miserable. And I go do my second pool. And I go do my third pool. I go do my fourth pool. And I look up, and it's a beautiful spring day. And everything is green, and the sky is so blue, and it is such a beautiful day outside. And all of a sudden, I feel good. Sometimes the only thing that will make bad feelings go away is to do the right thing. doesn't matter how you feel about your marriage your job, a co-worker, the degree that you're following, do the right thing. Be like Job. Determine that no matter what happens, you will do the right thing. You will keep your integrity. Feelings change, but God's principles don't change. So I've talked about doing the right thing in spite of our feelings doing the right thing in spite of difficulties, and doing the right thing in spite of others, the way others treat us. So the question is, what kind of person do you want to be? If I told you that the other day when I was on 75, a driver cut me off and I got mad and I sped up in front of him and got slammed on the brakes, would you admire me? Oh, Danny's cool. No, that would take away a little bit of whatever you think of me. You wouldn't admire that. What kind of person do you want to be? How do you want people to look at you? How do you want your children to look at you? How do you want your wife to look at you as a husband? Do you want to be the kind of man that your wife admires and looks up to and teaches your son to be like dad? Or do you want to be the kind of dad where mom says, don't do that? What kind of wife do you want to be? Bible talks about a virtuous woman says her wife is far above rubies. When you die, do you want people to look back at you and feel good that you're gone? Or do you want them to be the do you want to be the kind of wife that everybody loves? Everyone speaks highly of. I never hear a bad word come out of her mouth. She treats everybody with love. What do you want on your gravestone? Do you want written, he was a quitter? You know, when Job finally made it through his 
trials. He got his health back. And he had ten more children. And I think the Bible says that his daughters were the most beautiful in the whole land. And he got back double what he had had as far as uh, livestock. You know, when that first started, Job's wife asked him, said, why do you hang on to your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job said, till I die, I will not put away my integrity. Now, if Job had taken his wife's advice and cursed God and died, would he have had the ten more children? Would his flocks have been double what they were? You know the answer to that. What's going to happen to you if you quit? You know, a lot of people get divorced and they look back and they say, I shouldn't have done that. A lot of people live happily with their second wife or their second husband. You know why? Not because the second wife or husband is better, but because they learned something. Why not stick it out and learn it with the first person you married? And you can look back. Angie and I look back at lots of hard times. And we love each other more because of that. It gives you a feeling of pride when you have faced obstacles and overcome them. Do you want on your gravestone he was a quitter? Or do you want he never gave up? I hope that you want on your gravestone he never gave up. We always offer a song of invitation. And a lot of people think that if they want to make a change in their life, they've got to come up in front of everybody and admit their fault. The Bible doesn't say that. Sitting right where you are, you can say, I'm going to do better. I'm going to do the right thing. But whatever your decision is, as we sing the words of this song, determine to make a change while we stand and sing.